Good afternoon, everybody. Hello and, and welcome. My name is Lucretia Walker. I'm one of the lay canons here at the cathedral, and it gives me very great pleasure today to welcome not only you, but to welcome Bishop Stephen Cottrell, who I've known for more years than either of us care to remember, but in entirely happy circumstances. Uh, great to see you and your wife, Rebecca, here again today. Um, amongst other things, Stephen is a prolific author, author of 38 published books, including How to Pray, Do Nothing to Change Your Life, Discovering What Happens When You Stop, Two Books of Meditations for Good Friday and Easter, The Things He Carried and The Things He Said, and Adventures of Naughty Nora, <laughs> a children's book. Today he's reflecting on a remarkable series of paintings by Stanley Spencer, the English 20th century painter of Christ in the Wilderness, um, which are the subject of his latest book, which you'll be able to buy uh, after this, and in which he's found uh, a rich source of spiritual nourishment and wisdom. Would you please welcome Bishop Stephen? Uh, well, my dear friends, how good of you to give up a, a Sunday lunchtime to look at some paintings uh, by Stanley Spencer with me. C can everybody hear okay? Yeah, great. It's just I'd rather not stand behind the lectern, not least because I want to look at the paintings as well um, as, I, as I talk to you. Uh, I don't know how much you know about Stanley Spencer, but I think uh, most people would agree he is one of the great English painters of the 20th century, though perhaps a little out of fashion nowadays. Uh, he made his name as a war artist uh, during and just after the First World War. Uh, he served as an ambulance driver and then as a soldier in the Berkshire Rifles, and he was uh, based in Salonika. And like, I suppose, so many men of that generation, most of the rest of his life was shaped uh, in so many ways by the horrors of that experience. But most of his life was spent living and working in his beloved Cookham. And so if you know anything about Stanley Spencer, you'll probably be aware of those incredible paintings where the life of Christ is set in Cookham. So you, there's pictures of uh, Jesus carrying the cross down Cookham High Street, the Last Supper in Cookham Malt House, preaching at Cookham Regatta, and then perhaps most famous of all, uh, the great picture of the resurrection in Cookham Churchyard. Many of those paintings, if you want to see them in the flesh, uh, you can go to Tate Britain and find them, or it's not far if you live in and around London, not far to get down to Cookham, and go to the Stanley Spencer Gallery, a, a wonderful uh, day out that I can recommend. However, a little warning, if you like the paintings that I'm going to share with you today, which are not so well known, I'm afraid if you want to see them in the flesh, you have to go to Perth in Western Australia. <laughs> because sadly, uh, these, I believe, some of his greatest paintings, and certainly in my view, some of the most important paintings of Christ from the 20th century, English paintings, are lost to our nation. So there we are. 
Uh, I saw them for the first time uh, at an exhibition, a retrospective exhibition of Spencer at the Barbican in the early 1990s. Now, Stanley Spencer, before we get onto the paintings, just a little bit more background. Stanley Spencer was someone who had grand schemes. It's wise for us at this point to remember that looking at paintings in art galleries is a strange modern idea. Uh, and for most of human history, that's not how you looked at paintings. Paintings were made for a particular purpose, either for the gratification of the wealthy, so they were, they were hung in wealthy people's houses and nobody could see them except for the wealthy, um, or, the, or, of course, they were made for churches or other public places. And so art had a much more public function than it does nowadays. Uh, and, that's, and that warmed Spencer's heart. He, he didn't want to really have paintings that hung in art galleries. He wanted paintings for the church. Um, and one of the great, like most of his grand schemes, unfinished schemes, was that he wanted to create what he called a church house. Now, if you know anything about Mormon temples, if you look... I mean, Spencer was a prolific journalist. Uh, and most days, he would write down his latest thoughts and schemes and reflect upon his own paintings. So we can learn a lot about how he thought about his work. Um, and the church house was an idea that uh, dominated most of his life. And his plan was to build, some, or find a rich benefactor to build, something like a Mormon temple, which when you go inside it, is made up of a great network of rooms. And in each of the different rooms, Spencer's hope was that his paintings would be gathered there and we would meditate on different aspects, both of Christ's life and indeed of Spencer's own life. One of the rooms was going to be the Christ in the wilderness room. And it was going to be the room that you would go to, uh, as it were, during Lent, or to meditate upon the 40 days that Christ spent in the wilderness. And so one of Spencer's plans was to paint 40 portraits of Christ, one, as it were, for each day of Lent. However, as was the way, not only was this church house never built, he only ever finished eight of the 40 paintings. Uh, Tate Britain does have sketches for all 40, so he kind of mapped out what he would do, but only eight were finished, and uh, there won't be time this lunchtime to talk about all eight, but, but there they are. Um, uh, and as I say, if you go to Perth in Western Australia, you can see them. They're, they're quite small, about, about so big. Uh, and Spencer's known, most of his most famous paintings are vast, but these are quite small. Each one only took him about a day to paint. Uh, and in his diaries, uh, there's, a, there's some beautiful passages where he speaks about having completed the painting. He would put the painting on the mantelpiece above the hearth, light a fire in the hearth, put his chair sort of in front of the mantelpiece, and then spend the evening meditating upon the painting. Now, Spencer also, in his journals, is endlessly contradicting himself. So his other idea, if the church house never got built, the other idea was that he would put these 40 paintings in the ceiling of the chancel of Cookham Parish Church. Uh, and if you go to Cookham Parish Church and go into the chancel and look up, you will find there are 40 panels. And the paintings, of course, match the size of the panels precisely. So he kind of held out this hope that maybe one day they will be put up there. But of course, 
uh, none of that happened. Most of them were painted uh, in the autumn of 1939. Not all of them, he came back to the paintings in the 50s, but most of them in 1939. And that, of course, also says something about why he would pick upon this theme. Uh, His own war experience as a very young man was now being rekindled as the whole of Europe found itself in, in a kind of wilderness of turmoil and uncertainty. He was also going through a very difficult time in his own life. Uh, He was estranged from his beloved wife, Hilda. He'd embarked upon a fairly loveless, unconsummated and sexless relationship with a lesbian, Patricia Priest. And he was also, for one of the very few times in his life, not living in Cookham. So the idea of wilderness was happening all around him and also within him, and out of that experience, these astonishing images were born. A little bit about how he went about each painting, then we'll look at a few of them in detail. Uh, Again, we know from his diaries, uh, the method he used for these paintings is, first of all, he imagined Jesus a day at a time of these 40 days in the wilderness, and his starting point was a text from scripture. So he'd simply take one verse as his starting point, then imagine that verse as the jumping off point for one day in the wilderness. So let's, um, we're not really sure what order to look at these paintings in, but this seems to me as good a one as any to start with, though we won't dwell on this one for very long. Um, Uh, This one is called um, Driven by the Spirit into the Wilderness. And so uh, it seems to be the logical place to begin. Uh, It's that text uh, from Mark's Gospel. And uh, what I like about this painting is, I mean, Jesus is sort of Tarzan-like, swinging from branch to branch, going into the wilderness. But you may notice that the trees behind him are still. Uh, And I think one of the themes of the paintings is that Jesus is being propelled by what you might call an inner gale, an inner tempest. So there's a kind of billowing of his own clothes. He's holding on for dear life, and yet there's no other wind around him. Uh, This is the first one I thought we might look at in a little more detail. Uh, This painting is called uh, Jesus Rises from Sleep to Pray. And it's hard at first to know exactly which bit of scripture Spencer had in front of him. There are are several passages which it could be, but again, I think we're probably in the first chapter of St. Mark's Gospel, where it says, very early the next day, Jesus went off to a lonely place, and there he prayed. And there are quite a number of episodes in the Gospels where we find Jesus going off on his own and praying. But what I particularly love about this painting is that it says something very powerful about the very nature of prayer itself. Uh, So you may notice that the way Spencer has painted Jesus uh, is rather as if he is a flower. Uh, In fact, it could, could be like a lotus flower, which is itself in the Buddhist tradition a symbol of prayer. And so you see his robes are splayed out around him like the petals of a flower. His hands reach up to heaven like the stamen of a flower. And I think one of the things the painting is saying uh, is that prayer is normal, it is natural, it is what we are made for. 
that just as a flower opens its leaves and its petals to the sun on a new day, so Jesus rises from sleep to prayer and praise. And there is perhaps another way of reading the painting would be to say it's almost like he's a rocket being propelled. Um, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the blast at the bottom from this arrow. Um, there's an incredible focused attention upwards in the painting. Also, something that you'll notice throughout the paintings is, with, with one notable exception, is that whereas most of his paintings are set in Cookham, this definitely, with one exception, isn't Cookham. And, and it's actually much more like Salonica. Um, actually, the, the paintings seem to reach back to his wartime experience, and this, of course, does look rather like a shell hole or a foxhole that Jesus is in. But the way Spencer has painted Jesus is he's placed Jesus uh, in a foxhole, in a crater, but in a posture of great attentiveness to God. And a question we might ask is, um, why does a flower open its leaves and its petals to the sun on a new day? Well, the answer is that a flower opens its leaves and its petals to the sun as part of that process whereby the plant receives energy for life. Now that isn't the reason that we pray, but that is certainly one of the consequences of a prayerful life. Uh, that when we pray, when we come into this kind of relationship with God, we receive the energy that we need for living. So here is a a picture of Jesus at prayer. Uh, this, is, this is another one of Jesus praying. We, we won't dwell on this one, but it's a very different image of prayer. He went, this is called, he went up a mountain and uh, he went up a mountain to pray. Uh, and, and what's interesting about this one is this, this is, I mean, th this one is a very... Um, Perhaps quite an unusual posture for prayer. I don't know whether, when, or if you pray. This, this is how you. This is the position you're in. Whereas this one, you know, is is the classical, isn't it? You know, Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. This is little boy kneels at the edge of the bed. You know, this is um, it's a very, very domesticated image of prayer. And yet, what's interesting is Jesus has placed the ins, uh, Spencer has placed the inside outside. It is the most um, stylized posture for prayer, kneeling at what appears to be the edge of a bed, yet actually we're told it's up a mountain, and the top of the mountain looks rather like an altar. And I think what we see in these two paintings is the interplay of desire and discipline in Jesus' life and in the spiritual life. But this is the next one where I thought we might look at in more detail. This one is called... Um, and I have to say, this is my favourite one in the series. Uh, this one is called Consider the Lilies. <laughs> now, straight away, if you've got any uh, familiarity with the New Testament, you'll know where we are in the Bible. We're in uh, St Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, a very famous passage where Jesus says, um, you know, do not worry about what to wear. Uh, look, the lilies of the field, you know... Uh, even Solomon in all his glory isn't arrayed like, like one of these. 
Except when you look at the painting, the first thing you'll notice almost immediately is it's called Consider the Lilies. We know which passage of the Bible Spencer had in front of him, and yet you don't need to know much about flowers to know, hang on a minute, they're not lilies. Uh, They are just the common daisy. I mean, they're nice big daisies, but they're just the common daisy. Uh, And this is the one painting which might be, these could easily be the water meadows. You know, suddenly the desert, the desert up till now in the paintings has been quite a barren place. Uh, This desert feels quite a fertile place. Um, And there's Jesus down on all fours, gazing at daisies. I I rather like as well the way that in the foreground of the painting, there's a suggestion that just as Jesus gazes at the daisies, so the daisies are turning their faces to gaze at him. And as we've already reflected upon, that's what flowers do. They they follow the source of light. So these daisies are, are also beholding Christ. I don't know whether Spencer ever read uh, the, one of the great and uh, most read devotional classics of the 20th century, a book called The Autobiography of a Soul by Thérèse of Lisieux. I don't know whether he ever read it. But uh, Thérèse of Lisieux was a young Carmelite, French Carmelite nun. Uh, she was diagnosed as being terminally ill when she was still, I think, a teenager or maybe just 20. Almost as a form of therapy, her mother superior told her, write write down, write down what you're experiencing, what you're feeling. And she wrote, she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And that book, which was then published after her death, became one of the best-selling and most widely read Christian books of the last century. Still read very widely today. If you went into a, a church and saw a statue of Therese of Lisieux, she would always be portrayed carrying a bunch of flowers, normally roses or lilies, and she's known in popular devotion as the little flower. The reason she is called the little flower is that the most famous passage in her book, and here I'm going to quote from memory rather than read you what is quite a long passage, so I'm paraphrasing as I go, but uh, in the book she says something like this. God has his great saints, St. Peter, St. Augustine, St. Paul. And they, if you imagine that the world of souls, our world, is like God's garden, these great saints are like lilies and roses. But, says Therese, writing from an enclosed life, an unknown person uh, in a monastery uh, in France... She says God also has his little saints and his little saints are like little flowers. They are like daisies uh, growing at his feet. And, And Therese says that God takes equal delight in the lilies and the daisies and that she she says I feel that my vocation is to be a little flower. Which therefore is very ironic that when she's portrayed in stained glass windows and statues, she's carrying a bunch of roses or lilies, but that's another matter. She should be wearing a daisy chain. (laughs) But, But whatever, whether Spencer had read that or not, I don't know. But he seems to have, which we'll see happening in some of the other 
paintings, he seems to have rather subverted the text from Scripture and he's swapped uh, lilies for daisies. Uh, there was some years ago a long-running correspondence in a horticultural magazine uh, where the, the correspondence began with somebody asking, how can I get rid of the daisies and buttercups in my lawn? And you know how these correspondences go. Over, over, over a couple of years, other people would write in with their pet home remedies for clearing up their lawn, none of which worked for the original writer. Uh, after some years, this long-running correspondence ended with a letter which simply said, uh, Dear Sir, have you tried loving them? <laughs> uh, and that's what, that's what I love about this painting is, you know, you might ask yourself the question, what is Jesus doing in the painting? What is Jesus doing? And I think the most profound answer is the most obvious answer. He's doing nothing. You know, nothing that the world would consider economic, productive or important. He is just down on all fours in the lawn gazing at the daisies. And why is he gazing at the daisies? Is he gazing at the daisies because of all the important, wonderful things the daisies have achieved? Well, no, obviously not. It's a, you know, it's a stupid question. He, he's gazing at the daisies just because they are. And if I'm even half right that somewhere in Spencer's vision was the idea that maybe we are the daisies, that this is God's garden of souls, where the little flowers are just as valuable as the big flowers, then, of course, the implication of this painting is this is how God looks at us. He looks at us and delights in us, not because of all the wonderful things we've achieved. He looks at us and delights in us just because we are. Uh, the other thing you might notice about the painting is that Jesus has put on, I don't know how to put this politely, <laughs> put on a bit of weight. <laughs> and which, which I have to admit, I rather like. I can't, I, I find it hard to think. I know, I know there's those kind of Botticelli-esque, you know, type figures, but I, I can't really think of another painting of a fat Jesus. You know, in fact, most images of Jesus, certainly most of the kind of ghastly stuff that clutters up our churches, um, uh, usually show Jesus as a model and picture of health. It looks like he's, you know, he's up on the cross, but he looks like he's just got back from the gym. <laughs> you know, six-pack stomach, finely honed muscles. And so there's something rather lovely about this this replete with the good things of the good creation Jesus that Spencer has painted. Though maybe it's not fatness that, that Spencer's portraying here. Um, another way of perhaps reading the painting is if you, forgive this way of describing it, if you took the head off, you know, took the head and the arms off this, you'd, you'd actually think you were looking at a rock. You know, there's something almost as if this Jesus is part of this landscape. Um, it's a very, very incarnate Jesus. 
I had, um, I had an experience uh, oh, quite a number of years ago now, which, which I keep coming back to, uh, where we used to live, the paving stones outside our house had got out of sync, and so people kept on tripping up on them. Um, the council came along, lifted the paving stones, and put down some tarmac. I came out of the house a couple of days later. I'm walking down the pavement, and I'm stopped dead in my tracks by a tiny, tiny sliver of green in the tarmac. Now, I need to tell you, this is not something that happens to me very often, but for a moment, as I stopped and saw this little speck of something that was growing in the tarmac, for a moment, I had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. I don't know what it was. I think it was something about what you might call the creative tenacity of nature that just kind of was astonishing. You know, here we were, just 48 hours after the tarmac was laid, and yet nature somehow was already reoccupying the tarmac. You know, leave it for a few years and it would be a garden. Uh, and, and in that moment, and that sense of, I don't know, this is a wild, crazy, beautiful universe that we are part of, in that moment, I just had this great desire to, well, to do what I see here. I had this great desire to get down on my knees and gaze in wonder at this creation of which I'm a part. You know, one of the great dangers of us 21st century human beings is we, we've forgotten that we're part of this creation. Um, when, when did the Lord's Prayer change? I was at a prayer book eight o'clock this morning and I noticed in the prayer book it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In earth. But somewhere, the in earth got changed to on earth. And, and I don't think that was the work of any liturgical commission. I think it just sort of happened. And it kind of happened because we, we quite like the idea of being on the earth with ours to do with as we please. But in the earth, part of the earth, that's an idea that most of us have lost. Well, Spencer had a great sense of this created world belongs to God, reveals the presence of God, and God can be found in every particle of creation. It's very interesting that um, Spencer earned most of his money by painting landscapes. And if you've, ever, if you've ever seen any of his landscapes, I mean, they're beautiful. He, he didn't really like them himself. He did them because they sold, and these paintings during his lifetime didn't sell very well. Um, and so he'd, he'd churn out these landscapes um, in order to make the money to paint the things he really loved. But if you look at the landscapes, there's almost a... There's almost a pre-Raphaelite delight in every leaf and every stem and every petal because Spencer had this astonishing sense that everything revealed the glory of God. And here we see Jesus uh, both gazing at the daisies which might also be us but delighting in every tiny bit of creation because it is. 
So there's me outside my house. This is about 20 years ago. Outside my house, there's that speck of green in the pavement. I've got this great, overwhelming desire to get down on my knees and thank God for this world he has made, of which I'm a part. But the reason I'm telling you this story, you know, 20 years later, is because, of course, I didn't. You know, I didn't get down on my knees. And, um, and I'm still troubled by that. Because that sort of experience, I don't know about you, but that sort of experience doesn't happen to me very often. You know, most of the time I'm not aware of the presence of God in that vivid, intimate way. And so why is it that on the rare occasion that it happens, I'm not able to enter into it? Even as it happened, I'm uh, embarrassed to tell you, I was probably evaluating its potential as a sermon illustration. (laughs) You know, rather than entering into the joy of the moment. And that's why I think also, you see, this painting might be a picture of Sabbath. Now, now Sabbath is a, another thing that we've lost um, in our church and in our world, at, I think, a terrible cost. Uh, now, every, every day is the same. E- even, the, even the divisions between night and day are largely lost to us. Uh, none of us really knows what darkness is, uh, even if you live in the country. In the Bible, the Sabbath is both a commandment and a gift. It is the climax of the creation that God enters into that which he has made and it is good. And I think we see here, so you might say, this is a picture of Jesus at play. Um, the, The Jesus enjoying the Sabbath rest of the goodness of the good creation. And therefore it's an invitation to us to think about how we live our lives. How do we inhabit this earth? I mean, perhaps another text we might put alongside the the Consider the Lilies text. Of course, the Consider the Lilies text, the context of that is, um, do not worry about tomorrow. You know, today has, I I remember it in the authorised version, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Um, Be concerned about the things of today. And yet... I spend so much of my life either raking over the past or anxiously fretting about the future. And when it comes to the present moment, most of the time, I'm not present. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become as a child. Now, of course, I do realise, I'm not stupid, I do realise that most of us don't want to enter the kingdom, or at least not the kingdom of God. Um, I, for instance, want to enter the kingdom of Stephen. Um, And most of my actions clearly reveal that's the kingdom I want to enter into. But on a good day, with a following wind, I might want to enter the kingdom of God. And if I want to enter the kingdom of God, then, then this is how I must become. I must become someone who can enter joyfully and passionately into the present moment. Uh, to see and behold the presence of God in whatever happens to be in front of me. Another way of reading the painting may be to say, it so happens that it's daisies that Jesus is gazing at. But in another moment, on another day, it would be whatever is in front. 
So I'm just going to get into my pulpit for a moment, then I promise to get out again and look at the next painting. But if this was a sermon rather than, rather than a talk, at this point I think I would say... So, so in the light of, of this scripture and this astonishing painting, what is the challenge for us? Well, well I, I think I would say, you know, the, the, you know what, what's the challenge of the Christian life Right now, I better do a time check actually because I've got to stop talking in a minute. At 31 minutes past one, what's the challenge? Well, I think the challenge is that I might be looking to behold the presence of God in you lot. Because this is the only moment that we possess with any certainty. We are inhabiting this moment now. And are we able to have eyes to behold the beauty, the presence of God in whatever is in front of us in this moment, and that you might try to behold the presence of God in me. That, that's how we are called to live our lives. And that's what I see in this picture and its shadow, which is this picture with which we'll finish. And suddenly we find ourselves right back in the desert. Um, probably, of the ones we've looked at so far, the most barren of all the images. Uh, and this, which you, this, this is perhaps the most famous painting in the series. Some of you may well have seen it before. Um, this picture is called The Scorpion. And it's not obvious which bit of scripture Spencer had in front of him. To the best of my knowledge, uh, there are two references to scorpions in the New Testament, both in Luke's Gospel. First one is the Lucan version of the more famous Matthean saying. In Matthew, Jesus says, what father among you would give his son uh, a stone when he asked for bread? In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says this, what father among you would give his son a scorpion when he asked for an egg. Well, the implication of this painting is God the Father, that's who, because here is Jesus squatting in a very barren desert and he cradles a scorpion in his hands. A and he looks at the scorpion with something of the same tenderness with which he beheld the daisies. Now we know, of course, the one thing we do know about the wilderness in Scripture is it was a place of temptation. So what we see here, perhaps, is something of the Gethsemane story played out through the image of God the Father giving Jesus not the egg, but the scorpion therefore relating to the Gethsemane story where Jesus says, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. But in the end, he prays, not my will be done, but yours. He, as it were, in the terms of this painting, he receives the scorpion. Uh, the second time scorpions are mentioned, and you may notice there's a second scorpion scuttling at Jesus' feet. The second time scorpions are mentioned is the return of the 70, where it says, we trod this is the 70 that have been sent out by Jesus, they return and they say, we trod down scorpions underfoot and they didn't kill us. Well, the power that Jesus 
displays in this painting is not the power, should I happen to tread on the scorpion, I will kill the scorpion, the scorpion won't kill me. Now, the power that Jesus displays is the power to love the scorpion, to love the very thing that could kill you. And now if you look again at some of the details of the painting, I mean, you'll notice, notice first of all the way Jesus' hands are painted. I mean, it is, which I think cannot be coincidental, it's precisely the way we are taught to hold our hands when we receive Holy Communion. So there's a sense in which, in this painting, for Jesus to receive the scorpion is to receive Communion. You'll also notice that his fingers are are very swollen. And I think the reason his fingers are swollen is because he's been stung. And so the painting, I mean, it's a very complex painting, and it, and it does something which I think perhaps only paintings can do, is it's holding different things together in one image. So it's both a picture of Calvary, if it's possible, take this cup away from me, but not my will be done, um, uh, sorry, a picture of Gethsemane, and it's a picture of Calvary at the same time. Uh, and I think it perhaps brings together, I mean, in John's Gospel, there is no Gethsemane story. The whole Gethsemane story is captured in one text where Jesus says, am I not to drink the cup the Father gave me? And then on the cross in John's Gospel, Jesus cries out, I thirst which I think in the terms of this picture we could say, I long to take the cup the Father gives me and drain it to the dregs. I long to receive the scorpion. Well, some people have also, this may be a little fanciful, but I've heard some people say that, that the position in which Spencer has painted Jesus is like, is like a woman squatting in, the, in order to give birth. That, that he's kind of giving birth to something, but that, that may be too fanciful. Perhaps we've got time just for a very quick glimpse of one more, and then I think we'll stop. It's another dark one to end with. Uh, it's called The, the Eagles, uh, based upon that scripture where Jesus says, you know, where the corpse is, there the eagles will, or the vultures will gather. Uh, Spencer is very realistic about both the beauty of nature and its horror. Um, and, and he shows us Jesus loving the scorpion, loving the very thing that will kill him. And yet here we also see him turning away from some of the horrors of nature. Uh, and perhaps we do need to remind ourselves how, hor how horrific nature can be. And most of us probably don't have personal experience of this, but I sometimes find myself kind of semi-haunted by things I've seen on the television. I, I remember seeing a documentary where there was, I think, a, a wildebeest or a gazelle giving birth, and, and as the baby gazelle or whatever it was was halfway out of its mother... The hyenas were pulling it and eating it as it was being born. Um, and so let's not get sentimental about how beautiful nature is. 
It, it can be grim and ghastly and bloody and dark and violent and, and full of fear. And yet the promise of Scripture is that the lion will lie down with the lamb. Here, forgive me, I have to quote Woody Allen at this point. (laughs) Woody Allen says, the lion will lie down with the lamb, but the lamb probably won't get much sleep. (laughs) 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 But this is the one painting where Jesus looks away. In every other picture, he is gazing with joy, delight, tenderness at this good creation that reveals God. And here he looks away um, uh, because there are terrible horrors in the world. And I think perhaps looks towards that great vision um, where swords are turned into plowshares, where lions lie down with lambs, uh, looks beyond uh, this world to that new heaven and new earth, remembering that the Christian hope um, is for a recreation, uh, this world made new uh, in and through uh, Jesus Christ. So there we must stop. Um, It's been a whistle-stop tour through some of the eight paintings uh, that Spencer did, I think they together show us not just something important about Christ, uh, but they open up to us themes of vocation, how we inhabit this world, and how we look upon this world uh, and upon each other. And uh, I hope this short tour has opened up some things for you. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Bishop Stephen, for a very enjoyable, um, very interesting uh, um, talk with much to reflect on. And I I wondered if people would like to ask or or comment or um, have uh, something fleshed out from Bishop Stephen. There's There's a hand over there. They are. Well, well uh, uh, funnily enough, I have been to Perth once, and um, uh, I, I, I knew before I went there um, that, they were, that while they were there, they were on loan to a gallery in Germany somewhere. But I, I, didn't, I did know that before I went, which is a great pity, because I've only, I've only ever seen these paintings twice in the flesh, once at the Barbican and then once again at the Tate, whenever it was, about ten years ago, there was a retrospective at the Tate. But as far as I'm aware, in the... The Art Gallery of Western Australia in Perth, they're part of the permanent exhibition. I mean, they are, you know, they're, they're probably amongst the, you know, the best, um, best paintings they've got from Europe, so they often go off on loan, but yes, I think you can see them there. I did go to the gallery, it's a fantastic gallery. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, I, yes, I mean, there's... The, the trouble is, once I start talking about these paintings, it is a little bit like turning on a tap. So I'm sorry if, um, I'm sorry if the talk wasn't as structured as it should be, because especially once I get on this one, I, I, 
there's so much more I could have said about this one. I, I think one of the things that's interesting about a lot of his paintings is, I mean, I, the answer is I don't know. Um, uh, a lot of what I've said to you, I've got from either reading what other people have said about the paintings, though not a great deal has been written about these paintings. Um, and a lot of those people who write about Spencer nowadays put his faith down as a kind of strange eccentricity, which I think is scandalous. Um, he was a man of unorthodox but very, very deep faith. And I think it's impossible to understand any of his paintings, uh, you know, his, his landscapes included, without understanding his faith. Um, but a lot of what I've learned about the paintings have been simply from my own observation and from reading what Spencer himself wrote about some of them. So I don't know what that means, but the way I... I think it's a, it's a seed head. And, and I think what it is is the presence of death in the painting. Um, that even in this, the most fecund and fertile of the paintings, where the wilderness is almost... If it is a picture of Sabbath, it's actually not the wilderness at all, it's heaven. Um, somehow you, you got this glimpse of death... And one of the ones we didn't look at, this one, this is called Foxes Have Holes. Um, and in this one, it's, it's lovely the way, I mean, a rather bored Jesus, in, in a cruciform shape, in a, in a very, again, a very barren desert, lies against a bank. And do you see how Spencer's painted the sleeves of his garments mirror the holes where the foxes live? Again, there's this great symmetry between Jesus and the world in which he's set. Um, but you notice his hand, as you look at it on the left, his right hand is, you know, is, is alive. His left hand is shriveled and clenched and possibly dead. I mean, there's, there, a lot of the paintings seem to have life and death in him. And certainly in, uh, that's how I perhaps begin to understand that even, even in this wonderful observation of life, there is also death. I, w I was interested in the way you said he painted them very often in a day. Yeah. And was thinking that perhaps he himself, there's no reason to think he had a particularly clear idea of where he was going. He just let, in, literally, inspiration flow in and let the... Yes, because they are small, you see. You know, so that, that's why they, they you know, then obviously the, you know, they're quite massively enlarged for you to see them, but they are small. Um, I like the way of perhaps not being overthought, but being a result yeah. of something. Yes, I mean, I'd have to check, I'd have, it'd be interesting to check them against the sketches that he did. Because um, uh, he was somebody who did used to map out his paintings quite precisely. Um, but I guess they did grow as they were painted. Yes, there are. There's, there's sketches for all 40, um, in, but not on public display at the Tate, uh, although it's our gallery, so I think I'm right. Saying you, you know, with, if you write in advance, you can see anything. Yeah. Have you seen them? Yes, I have, yes. Well, I've seen them when they were on display. You know, they, for, for particular exhibitions, they've been on display. Yes, yes, as far as I'm aware. Yes, you're right. The lady was saying that often in some of his other paintings you can actually recognise characters from Cookham in the paintings. Um, uh, and in fact, he puts himself into, into his paintings quite often more than once. You know, in, in the resurrection in Cookham Churchyard, I think he's put himself in four or five times. Um, uh, 
But um, uh, no, as far as I'm aware, no. The, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, what a good thought. I, I think... <laughs> yes, I mean, it, certainly that thought ties in precisely with how I see the painting as being, uh, this is actually not the wilderness. Um, or it's... Or it's... If it's a picture of Sabbath, it's a picture of that which is to come, breaking into the present in Christ. So if it's, if it, if it's in that sense, what, what in... Christian theological terms we'd call eschatological, it's, it's, it's the, the future breaking into the present in that sense, then yes, a replete Jesus would, you know, that reading would fit in perfectly. I wish you'd told me that before I wrote the book. <laughs> Although that's interesting because I think, it, I, I, uh, uh, just a, on a little personal note with these paintings, is I have, I have lived with and loved these paintings for a very, very long time. Uh, as I say, seeing, seeing them for the first time at this Barbican exhibition, you know, whenever that was, 20 years ago. And, um, and I've had quite a big speaking ministry in the church. And uh, I started off giving a talk on whatever it was I've been asked to give a talk on. And I got into this thing of ending the talk with a brief meditation on a picture, not just using these pictures, but often using these ones because they seem to speak to me so powerfully about some of the big themes that interested me anyway. So I'd give a talk about prayer and then I might end with a picture of Jesus at prayer or I'd give a talk about, you know, so, so actually what is the Christian life and often end with this one or you talk about the cross and show the scorpion. And I found as the years went by the talks got shorter and shorter <laughs> and the meditations on the pictures got longer and longer. And, and, I, and I think almost without exception, always, you know, people would see things in the pictures which would open up for me uh, new insights. And that's, that is the beauty of, of painting, is that you can enter into it. You do have to stay with it, though, and I think that's something that in our culture we're not very good at. You know, you, you, you can get out your iPad or go on your, um, you know, go on your computer, put Christ or Jesus into Google, and you'll have, you know, 470,000 images to choose from, and we kind of endlessly flick from one to the other. Or we sit, with our, sit in front of our televisions with our zapper, just zapping from one channel to the next. And... and We've lost the ability to stay with something for any length of time and enter into it. And so actually just the discipline of looking at a painting is itself an invitation to contemplate, to prayer, to reflect, almost to enter into what wilderness means in, in the Christian tradition, a, a place of, of, of everything else being stripped away so that you can encounter the other. Uh, so... In order to read a painting, you've got to spend time with it and, and, and enter into it. Yes, I don't know, but yes, but again, it, 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 yes, I think it probably is a dandelion. It's quite hard to tell. Somebody who knows more about flowers than I do. It's clover, you think, yeah. Not, hard to tell what it is, but again, I think it's a fairly common flower. It's, it's not... 
It's not a lily or a rose. And he did, he did think, didn't he, of having the 40 there so they could be looked at over the 40 days of Lent? Yes, he had different ideas about how we'd look at them. I mean, one idea was, obviously, they'd all be in the roof of his church house or Cookham Parish Church, but another of his ideas was that you'd, what, you'd, you'd view them one at a time, um, uh, that, that each day one would be brought out and put on display, and, and you'd go through Lent that way. But sadly, all these wonderful ideas he had none well only one came to fruition perhaps i should have mentioned if you i mean some of you may be familiar with spencer's paintings if you're not get over to tate britain even better go down to cookham best of all actually in my view is go to um, a place called burclear which is just south of newbury on the a34 it's the one of his projects that got completed mainly because there was a wealthy benefactor uh, at Berkeley is a place called the Sandham Memorial Chapel, now owned and run by English Heritage. And it's the chapel to uh, one of the, uh, uh, I can't remember which, which uh, battalion it is. I don't think it's the Berkshire Rifles, it's another battalion. Anyway, it's, it's a memorial chapel to this regiment. Uh, and Spencer was commissioned to paint everything inside the chapel. And so at the, it's quite small. I mean, it's probably smaller than this building. It, it would be smaller. And at the east wall is the first of his great resurrection pictures, of which he's famous. And it's called The Resurrection of the Soldiers. A remarkable, remarkable painting. And then on, on the walls either side are, well, they basically tell the story of his wartime experiences. So most of them tell the story of Salonika, but there's other paintings as well about where he worked um, as an ambulance driver, also as where he worked in Bristol uh, as the war started. And, uh, it's, I mean, it's much, much better than the Sistine Chapel. Much better. Uh, and I, I'm not joking. Um, uh, it, it, is, it is one of the most remarkable places in England. And, and, as, you, and as you stand in the chapel, surrounded by these paintings, um, all, on every panel there are soldiers, but there's not a single gun in any of the paintings, nor is there a rank. No soldier has a rank, no soldier has a rifle. So, so even then, even Spencer, when he's painting war, has at the same time this image of heaven, of, of a world redeemed and renewed, where, where rank and rifle are taken away. There aren't any hanging at the moment at Tate Britain, sadly. Oh, there are there none, no, I can't think of a single one at the moment, hang on, yeah. Yes. Well, of course, that might be my reproduction, you know, that, that, yeah, uh, so that's a little health warning. Um, and, and I have to confess now, it is so long since I've seen the pictures in the flesh, I think I would be quite surprised seeing them again. You know, the, the last time they were in this country was with... Does anybody remember when it was? Was it 2001? Um, Late 1990s. Was it as long ago as that? Yeah. yeah. It was before there was a Tate Modern. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a long time. So, so, so that's a little bit of a warning that, that I, think, I think the palette of the colours... I don't think this is wildly inaccurate. I think the palette of the colours is, is quite sombre. Because basically he's he's painting the wilderness, and so it's that it's that palette I think he's in even even in this one. I, I think I always imagine this one as early morning. It's a, it's like, you know, is it a 
Is this, is this also, is this a, a glimpse of an Easter garden? It, it, I don't know why, there's something to me suggestive in the background of those early morning mists that you get on water meadows. Um, but uh, but, I'm, but I, I don't know. I, li- I like your point about um, how if you take away the face of Christ, you've got a landscape there. Yeah. And reading from that, the, the hare then begins to make a path through the landscape. Yes, and yes. It's integrated into the wider landscape. There, there is as well, I mean, so, it's not uh, just something else I should have said about this painting. There, there is a painting, I think, by Waterhouse um, of, of Narcissus uh, gazing, of course, at his own image. And if you put the paintings alongside each other, the composition is remarkably similar. And again, I don't think that can be a coincidence. You know, that Narcissus gazes upon his own image, Christ gazes upon uh, that which God has created. Well, thank you very, very much indeed, Bishop Stephen, um, for such a very enjoyable session looking at Stanley Spencer. Thank you. Thank you.